From APM Reports, this is Educate, a collaboration with the Heckinger Report. I'm Stephen Smith. Because I never thought I could go to college. I thought college was just for, like, smart, rich people. That's Max, a 10th grader at a public high school in Philadelphia. Our correspondent Emily Hanford was interviewing Max and his classmate Tamia a couple of weeks ago for an upcoming documentary about black teachers. And the conversation soon turned to the topic of race and wealth and college. Here's Tamia. Most black people aren't expected to go to college. You're expected to, if you graduate high school, to have an average McDonald's job or to drop out and be a drug dealer. It's feel like, it feel like Whose expectations are that when you say people? society's expectations, you know. When you get a college brochure, you ain't, I see almost all white people in my college brochures that I get, you know, and it's just like, wow, where's the black students? It's kind of shocking to hear a high school student say this, to realize this is what things look like from their perspective. But here's the thing. Tamia is right. Elite colleges in America, ones that send out fancy brochures, most of the students at a lot of those schools are white kids from upper-income families. There's a new study by the Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce that examines how many students from low-income families make it to the nation's most selective schools. To figure that out, researchers looked at the percentage of students who got Pell Grants. Most Pell Grants go to students whose families make less than $30,000 a year. The study showed that at hundreds of the nation's top colleges, fewer than one in five students got a Pell Grant. Top schools like Harvard and Yale have gotten lots of good press in recent years for making tuition free for students from low- and moderate-income families. But the new study shows that not very many of those students are actually making it to top-ranked colleges. Even the very dumbest rich kids go to better colleges and universities than the very smartest poor kids, to look at it bluntly. That's John Marcus. He covers higher education for the Heckinger Report. Students who already have attended fairly well-resourced, upscale, suburban public high schools and come to college fairly well-prepared are going to the institutions that spend the most money supporting them. And the students who, through no fault of their own, uh, have ended up at poor and poorly resourced public high schools with uh, very few advanced courses, not as many college counselors. Often their parents didn't go to college, so they have more trouble navigating the very complex process of enrolling and applying. Um, they end up at the institutions that do the least to support their students and as a result have the very lowest success rates. To put it another way, students from low-income families tend to go to colleges where the chance of getting a degree is at best about a 50-50 proposition. Kids from high-income families tend to go to colleges where they have more than an 80% chance of completing a degree. Now, of course, your chance of making it in college certainly depends on how well-prepared you are academically. And as John pointed out, students who go to less selective colleges tend to be less well-prepared. But according to the Georgetown study, there are tens of thousands of students receiving Pell Grants who are academically prepared for the nation's top colleges, and they're still not ending up at those schools. Today on the podcast, we ask why and what can be done about it. We're going to start with John Marcus, who wrote about the Georgetown study for the Heckinger Report. Emily talked to him about the study. Hey, John. Good morning. Good morning. The Georgetown study John wrote about focuses on a phenomenon known among education researchers as undermatching. That's when students end up at community colleges and other non-selective schools, even though their academic records indicate they could do well at much more competitive colleges. 
The Georgetown study estimates there are 86,000 low-income students whose ACT or SAT scores are as good as the students who get into selective colleges. So why aren't they ending up at those schools? What the colleges will say is that the students don't choose to apply to those institutions. And there's some truth to that. Low-income, first-generation students uh, see the sticker price of a prestigious private nonprofit university or college, or even increasingly some public flagships, and they don't think they can afford to go. They don't understand that very few people pay the actual list price, that most students, including low-income students, can probably qualify for a lot of financial aid, both institutional and uh, and external financial aid. Um, So there's some self-selection going on. But this only partly explains things, because it's not hard for colleges to find students with good test scores. All they have to do is buy a score report from the college board. The question is, do they really want more low-income students at their schools? If you think it through, universities and colleges have zero incentive to uh, recruit or enroll these students. An institution that has a certain amount of financial aid available to it can give all of that financial aid to one low-income student. And what they get is one student and no revenue. Or they could divide up that financial aid among five wealthy students whose families can afford the rest of the tuition. And they get five students and some revenue toward the bottom line. And so, as I said, there's really, if you think it through, no incentive for universities and colleges other than PR to enroll low-income students. And when you compound that with the reality that many low-income students self-select other kinds of institutions, more poorly resourced institutions, institutions closer to home, that is when you end up with a situation whereby perfectly qualified low-income students end up not going to the most prestigious, wealthiest universities and colleges, missing out on a lot of other opportunities those institutions provide to them, in addition to extraordinary educations like networking opportunities. And this gap, we've done some data research at the Heckinger Report that shows that this gap between the uh, higher and lower income students is widening. And again, institutional policy is driving this. When you look at the net price, that is the price that students pay after discounts from financial aid, It is going up much faster for the poorest students than for the wealthiest students. Now, at most institutions, uh, poor students still pay less than rich students, but that divide is narrowing. And when you're increasing the cost for low-income students in double-digit percentages, you're talking about, even if they're paying less, a level of increase in costs that low-income students can't afford. And already, most universities and colleges, even after generous financial aid, Pell Grants, and other uh, scholarships, uh, these students are committing or their families are committing, in some cases, in excess of their annual incomes to what they'd have to pay to go to college. John points out that colleges have to balance their books, too, and they don't all have the money to offer generous financial aid. But the new study from the Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce finds that many of the nation's most selective colleges could afford to do more to help low-income students. The study looked at the finances of the 69 most selective private colleges where fewer than one in five students gets a Pell Grant. At each of these schools, the average annual budget surplus was about $139 million over the last four years. And they have money in the bank. The median endowment at these schools is $1.2 billion. That's right, $1.2 billion. It's challenging for low-income students. Even when they do make it to wealthy, prestigious schools, low-income students often don't get all the financial help they need. 
John told me the story of a student he met at a university with a nearly $400 million annual budget surplus. He went to college, ran out of money. He had to take out private loans in the interim. The university charged them a late fee, which just made a bad situation worse. Uh, He talked about having to pay attention, and so did other low-income students that I met, to how they dressed, what they wore. He showed me a watch that his father got on a pawn shop because he felt that that kind of helped him fit in better. Uh, Can't afford to go out with his friends to a bar or to a restaurant. We were actually buying him lunch while I was on the campus because he was telling us he ate one meal a day uh, to save money. The leading schools in American higher education exist to find, cultivate, educate, and launch top talent students into the lives of meaning and leadership in our society. That is what we are here to do. This is Dan Porterfield. I'm the president of Franklin Marshall College. I have been president since March of 2011. Franklin and Marshall is a selective private college in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. A few years before Dan Porterfield became president, only 5% of incoming students received Pell Grants. He was hired to help change that. The board of trustees had understood that it was important for the school to begin to invest more in need-based financial aid. I was recruited to help carry that out in a way that would be educationally significant. This past fall, 19% of incoming students at Franklin and Marshall received Pell Grants. We called President Porterfield to find out how the school more than tripled its percentage of students from low-income families. This is not rocket science. It is not rocket science. Strong students from modest and low-income backgrounds are in ample supply and are, and are by no means hiding. But low-income students are not going to know about or necessarily be interested in a small college in southern Pennsylvania that has traditionally served mostly white students from more affluent families. Dan Porterfield says colleges must invest in selling themselves to a broader range of students. Franklin and Marshall has stepped up recruiting at high schools where there are lots of students from poor families. The college has set up a summer program for high-achieving, low-income high school kids. But Dan Porterfield says the most important thing is for a college to make need-based aid its number one financial priority. The Board of Trustees at Franklin and Marshall has more than doubled the school's need-based financial aid budget since 2008. And it's done away with that practice John Marcus talked about earlier, where schools divide up aid among five wealthy students instead of giving a full ride to a student from a poor family. So in order to take the need-based aid approach, where we can say to every student, you will receive the financial aid that you are eligible for so that you can enroll in school, we have phased out the program that is sometimes called merit aid or sometimes is called tuition discounting, which is when an institution tells a family they will give them more money, perhaps, than they're eligible for in terms of financial aid in order to have the student enroll. And we have phased that out, and we don't have students who receive those kinds of aid packages. To make up for lost revenue, the school increased its enrollment. Other schools have used this tactic, too. It's a way to accept more low-income students without having to say no to wealthy ones. Because saying no to wealthy kids can be a long-term risk for a school. The Georgetown study put it like this, quote, Many colleges and universities place great value on admitting students from wealthy families who could eventually become donors, unquote. At Franklin and Marshall, the new focus on upping the number of low-income students has turned out to be a draw for donors. Here's an example. 
Just last month, the college announced a million-dollar gift from a wealthy alum. The money is going to be targeted at helping students who have overcome obstacles, such as poverty and discrimination. Not every institution can use the particular strategies that we've used, but every institution can look at the array of ways that they generate revenue or the array of ways they spend money and find a way to prioritize more investment in need-based aid. I don't believe any institution is at its absolute maximum possible investment in need-based financial aid. Some politicians want to pressure schools to do what Franklin and Marshall has done willingly. A bipartisan proposal in Congress would charge a penalty to colleges that take the lowest proportion of low-income students. Dan Porterfield says colleges like Franklin and Marshall that don't start bringing in a wider range of students will suffer in the long run. It's crucial, for example, for schools that are located in areas like the Mid-Atlantic or the Midwest to broaden their recruiting footprints because the demographics are clear that the teenage population in the Mid-Atlantic and in uh, the Midwest will decline significantly over the next 15 years. So schools that continue to locate their recruitment only within their traditional geographic boundaries may wake up 15 years from now unable to build the student profile that they have sustained because they don't have relationships in the South uh, and in the West and the Northwest and the Upper North. So school benefits its long-term future by building pipelines into communities that will be demographically very strong for decades to come. And another thing... Dan Porterfield says when a college like Franklin and Marshall has a more diverse student body, all students at the school benefit, including the traditional demographic of mostly white students from wealthier families. John Marcus from the Heckinger Report agrees. He says when we think about what lower-income students miss out on when they're not ending up at the nation's top colleges, we should not forget what high-income students are missing out on, too. What higher income students lose out on is we're talking about people that go to colleges and universities that produce the future leaders of society. And they're not exposed to the degree to which low income students struggle and their families struggle to get by, never mind to go to college. And if higher income students from these most prestigious schools are not exposed to that, I worry about future policy decisions. I worry about whether the the, the people who are running things in our society will understand um, the, the struggles of these lower income students and, these and their families who are incredibly smart but still can't benefit from the same kind of opportunities that they did. That was John Marcus from our partner news organization, The Heckinger Report. We have a link to the article he wrote about the study by the Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce on our website, educatepodcast.org. We also have a link to the study itself. It's called The 20% Solution, Selective Colleges Can Afford to Admit More Pell Grant Recipients. Another prestigious private college that's been investing in recruiting more low-income students is Amherst in western Massachusetts. Our producer, Suzanne Pico, visited Amherst for a documentary back in 2014 called The New Face of College. Amherst was long known as a place for wealthy kids from elite high schools. But in the early 2000s, the college started to actively recruit and fund low-income students. When Suzanne visited, more than 20 percent of the student body were Pell Grant recipients. 
But as Suzanne found, fitting in at a place like Amherst can be a challenge for many of these students. Um, can I have everybody's attention real quick? So thank you all for falling for the bait. Rashard Bryant towers over a group of visiting high schoolers who have gathered this evening at Amherst's Community Engagement Center. Rashard is six foot eight and slim. He's a senior from the Bronx. On a campus of only 1,800 students, Rashard doesn't blend in. When he arrived at Amherst, he felt a little uncomfortable, but he thought at least he could find black students at Amherst that would be like him. Because I grew up in the Bronx where I was one of the stronger students in my school, um, I thought everyone here would be like me. Okay, we're all the strong students from our urban high schools, these public schools. Everyone's going to struggle too. Um, and I ended up realizing that one, not everyone was from the Bronx or an urban setting. Not everyone was from a lower income or working class background. Um, I met a lot of black students who were wealthy, um, and that was a first for me. Richard was worried he wasn't going to be as prepared for college as some of his more well-off peers. He got help from a summer program designed to ease the transition to Amherst, but he felt like he was constantly one step behind everyone else, and he always had to ask for extensions on papers. I think one of the hardest things as a person of color here is going to a white professor or going to any professor, but especially going to a white professor who may not know where you're coming from and having to say, I need an extension over and over and over again. It became the story of my life. And, you know, I finished with all A's um, at the end of my freshman year, but I finished with this sense of you're not doing it the way everyone else is doing it. You always need an exception. You're not you know, at the level that everyone else is. There are many more challenges that the lower income and black students faced on this campus than the affluent white students. Here's psychology professor Elizabeth Aries again. She wrote a book on race and class at Amherst. Because they're coming into an environment that is utterly unfamiliar to them. I mean, as far as some of them were concerned, they'd been dropped on Mars. Whereas this is a continuation of a world that the affluent students have already known. I've always been amongst students who were just like me, had similar backgrounds. That's Nadia Morsi. She's a graduating senior from New Jersey. Like their parents were most likely immigrants and they were first in their family to go to college, um, which is not the sort of experience I got here. Nadia is a first-generation student who says she really struggled to fit in at Amherst. It has been unbelievably difficult, I think. It's just, I feel like where I'm from in New Jersey or my experiences thus far have been like, Diversity was never an initiative. That was the surrounding I lived in. And I think I didn't even have to confront my, my identity. I didn't even have an identity before I came to Amherst. Like, then I automatically became, well, Mexican or Puerto Rican by default because that's what the assumption was. Nadia's mom is Peruvian and her dad is Egyptian. She told me she wished Amherst offered some sort of brochure for people like her to learn how to fit in. People of color people who don't have much money, people whose parents never went to college. The influx of new students has challenged things about college life that Amherst had always taken for granted, like the 10-day Thanksgiving break, for example. Elizabeth Aries says the college used to shut down during break. Basically, the students who are still on campus are the ones who can't afford to go home for that 10-day period. Well, these students are left without dining facilities who are basically going to have to pay the money, which they don't have, to go eat out in town for 10 days. Today, the dining hall stays open during Thanksgiving break. 
And what we've come to see as we've changed our student body is that there are many things on this campus that we hadn't thought through completely that were based on assumptions of wealth. But now we had many students here who didn't have that kind of wealth. That was an excerpt from our 2014 documentary, The New Face of College. You can find a link to the program on our website, educatepodcast.org. That's it for this episode. We would love to hear from you. You can tell us what you're thinking about, what issues you would like to hear more about on this podcast. Any criticism, constructive, will be welcome. You can send a note to contact at apmreports.org. The Educate Podcast is produced by Suzanne Pico and edited by Chris Julin. Emily Hanford is our senior producer. Thanks to our partner, The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.